Well, good morning. Are you guys awake now after that, after that video? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, my name is JP, and if we've not met yet, I'd uh, love the opportunity to meet you after service. Um, we are going to be diving into um, the second week of our family series called Arrows, Living Towards the Target, and trying to really focus on what it looks like uh, for our families to, to be able to be the way and, and live the way and love the way and lead the way that God has called us to in those areas. And so what I would like to do is just ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to open up God's word together and as we get ready for what he has for each and every one of us. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you are uh, in this place, God. We thank you for uh, your your love, your grace, uh, the fact that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are your children when we trust our lives to you and we confess our faith in Jesus. And so we're so thankful how our identity can change to being fully uh, devoted followers of you and children of yours. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us in this room and each person that's listening online, because no one who hears my voice right now is here by accident. And everyone who hears my voice right now is loved by you. So, Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we are currently in our second week of our Arrow series, and, and I... I think I shared with you, I'm trying to use like archery terms for each one of the different weeks, and so we'll, we'll explain all that in a moment. But today's uh, topic is called Quiver, and it's the idea of sibling rivalry. So last week we looked at sin, the generational captivity. If you want to look on the back of your notes, you'll be able to see the uh, main point from last week. But this week we're talking about sibling rivalry. And you know, when Shaylin was uh, three years old is when we found out that we're going to be having um, another daughter, and... Uh, I have this moment of, you know, Steph was going to the, um, was staying at the hospital and, you know, Elise was born at 1118 on August 6, 2015, 1118 PM. And so uh, we were there in the hospital. The next night I was back home with Shay. We're trying to talk through Steph. She um, would take um, one of, Ste like Steph has like different socks and she would like take a sock and like add it each day because she like wanted to hold on to Steph and like have something like that. And, um, and then... There was a moment where we were able to capture the first time they met her. I got to bring Shaylin in to meet her sister, Elise. And so here's a picture of sweet uh, three-year and eight-month-old Shaylin um, holding Elise DeVay. And so um, it's this moment where that was so sweet. And, you know, she, she still remembers that and all those things. And so it's a picture perfect. It's so nice. Uh, but like any siblings... Uh, it wasn't that much longer, I would say within the first week of uh, Elise being back home, that Elise was crying, and Shailen was like, Mom, Dad, can we just leave her outside? Like, this is, like, this moment of, you know, competing for attention, competing for affection, um, and even though they're both deeply loved, you still have that feeling of, well, you know, someone paying attention, or what does that look like? And, and obviously, that's a very small example, and we can have other bigger examples of sibling rivalry. If, if, if any of us have, have siblings in here, uh, then that's something that we can recognize moments where maybe we felt um, overlooked by our parents. Maybe we felt like the other one got all the credit or all the praise. Maybe we got all the praise, and we recognize that our sibling was kind of in the shadows, and so there's the and there's some of you who are middle-born, and you're just like, I just was happy my parents knew I was around. And so um, it's one of those where we look at the different dynamics of siblings and how 
when we get this wrong or when this isn't how God has created to be, when we're not living towards that target of a right relationship with our siblings, how that can change so many things, how that can be a detriment from our parents and for us and for future generations. And so the verse we've been kind of using for this series on the screen is Psalm 127, 3 through 5a. It says that children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And so as we're talking about the idea of, of quiver and um, how it's this idea of sibling rivalry, um, Embalora let me borrow this for an illustration where uh, obviously this is an actual quiver and the quiver itself has two different meanings, right? There's two different ways to look at it. One is the idea that it's a pouch or something that you, in which you hold your arrows. And so when I was thinking about the sibling rivalry series, or sorry, sermon, it's this idea of if there are arrows are being used to represent children in Psalm 127, and there's a group of arrows together in a quiver, then what better way to describe the closeness or the family of, a, of siblings? Because if one arrow is a child in the same household, then a quiver symbolizes siblings, right? And so this idea, there's that idea of siblings. There's the idea of being able to be together, that you know all the quirks and the funny stories of your parents that nobody else would understand. You're there in the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the lights and the dark moments. And you have that bond that lasts a lifetime because you've been through it together. Not that it's always great, not that it's always easy, not that it's always strong, but you have a bond. And so we look at that idea for the quiver. But also quiver can have this other connotation that it's a, it's a slight trembling of your hands and it starts to be able to embody the idea of when we quiver with fear or we quiver with anger and we start to tremble because the emotions are so strong that it causes us to physically have a manifestation of just being so frustrated or sad or discouraged or whatever it may be. And so with those ideas in mind, as we look at our idea of quiver sibling rivalry this morning, our main point, if you're following along with your notes, um, and actually, if it's okay, can we turn on the middle row of lights, if that's all right, just so that people can take notes? I'm assuming you're taking notes. You may not, but just let me live in that dreamland. Um, and so if you want to be able to follow along with that, um, you can do so. But our main point is this. When siblings are rivals, they often quiver with negative emotions, but thankfully, we have a God of reconciliation. When siblings are rivals, we often quiver with negative emotions. We're going to dive in, looking at the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis. We're going to look at some of the negative emotions that happens with rivalry. And then we're going to take a few moments to look at what ways, what actions we can take in order to bring that rivalry from rivalry to reconciliation. And so, if you will, uh, if you will join with me, we're going to be in Genesis uh, 25 is where we're going to start. Now, um, if you brought your own Bible, it's page, or sorry, if you brought your own Bible, it's Genesis 25. Uh, if it's in the church Bible, it's page 37. But here's what's going to happen is I'm going to have to kind of summarize Jacob and Esau's journey. And then we're going to read more closely uh, later on looking at Genesis 33. So Genesis 33 is where we'll end. We can kind of thumb through. We'll start at 25 uh, right now. And here's what I want to talk about for the first part of their notes under rivalry. Under that section under rivalry, it says that when parents favor one child over the other, it creates deep resentment between the siblings. That like we mentioned earlier, some of you were the favored one. You were the golden child. You were the one that could do no wrong. 
And no matter how often the other, your sibling may try to do a good job, you got credit and your parents ignored you. Or sorry, ignored them. Or for some of you, it's the exact opposite. That you could have worked so hard and done everything right. And yet there was another sibling who could do no wrong. And how that creates a resentment because we are in often in many ways trying to fight or vie for our parents' attention or affection or love. And so when a parent chooses to favor one child over the other, it creates this deep resentment. And we talked about this briefly last week, how this idea of child favoritism is something that went through Abraham's generation to Isaac's generation to Jacob's generation and affected Joseph as we dove through his story last week. But here's what I want to give a brief summation of Genesis 25. This is Isaac was praying in verses 19 through 26. We won't read it all, but there's the story. Is that Isaac was praying for his wife, Rebecca, to have kids, and she was barren. She was unable to have children. So the Lord gave her kids. But once during the the time of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pregnancy, man. (laughs) Um, During the pregnancy, uh, the, the twins started to fight with inside of her womb. And... I know I've felt when, when Steph was pregnant with our girls, like just one like elbow or one knee, and that was painful enough. But these were two, uh, two twins that were fighting, Jacob and Esau. And it talks about how when Rebecca prayed about it and asked God, he, she said, you know, or God said to her, to her that there are two nations within your womb and they are warring. So the rivalry started literally in the womb. And so she gives birth and Esau's first, and you see Jacob has like his hand on Esau's ankle, and then Esau, you know, it's, it's just a crazy story. And then all of a sudden, you know, Esau's the firstborn, Jacob's the second. But I want to focus on your attention on verses 27 through 28, as it hits on this part right here that says, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That verse 28 will define Jacob and Esau's life. That Isaac, the father, favored Esau, the oldest. And Rebekah, the mother, favored Jacob. That decision, that favoritism changes their lives, changes the course of their lives, and drives a deep resentment because no matter what Jacob could do, he can't get Isaac's affection, and Esau was unable to get Rebekah's. And so we start to see this deep resentment that can start to develop, and it takes time, but we start to see how this plays itself out. The next part of your notes, as we fast forward through their story a little bit, um, says this, that when a sibling feels wronged by another... It produces anger and separation. That, let, me, let me summarize a little bit what happens here. That later in, in Genesis 25, um, Esau, as the firstborn, is the one who gets the birthright. The birthright means that he has uh, the bigger um, part of the inheritance. And so Esau comes in from being wild game hunting. And ja- uh, sorry, yeah, Jacob is making his food. And Esau says, give me some of that soup. Jacob recognizes that, that Esau doesn't fully understand the, the power of the birthright, doesn't fully understand this. And so he says, well, give me your birthright. And so Esau says, what good is my birthright? I'm going to die right now if I don't have some food this moment. Notice, this is, a, this is a small, not really connected to this sermon, but notice this, how easy it can be if we don't recognize how valuable something is 
how easy it is for us to give up that which has incredible value for something that is so small. But I've used that example for uh, student ministries and talking about the idea of, of wanting to keep our purity because you're willing to give up something that is so powerful and so beautiful for a cup of soup, for a few likes on social media. I mean, how is it that we are willing to give up something so valuable for something so nominal? Anyways, that was free of charge. That wasn't even part of the sermon. So, um, but we talk about this idea that then Jacob gets the birthright from Esau because I'm going to die anyways. It doesn't matter. And so then he ends up getting the birthright. That's step one. That's the first way in which Jacob perceived from Esau. Esau thinks that Jacob had wronged him. But the next way is way more clear. And I do not have time to go through the story. But if you were to read Genesis 27, it's this entire story of how Rebecca, or uh, sorry, Isaac wanted to bless Esau as his firstborn and to give him the blessing. Now, Rebecca hears this while Esau is going out to get food in order to make a special meal for Isaac. Rebecca goes, again, remember how Isaac loves Esau? Rebecca loves Jacob. Rebecca takes Jacob and says, I'm going to give you something furry to put on your hands because your brother's hairy. That's in the Bible. That's not me making it up. And so we're going to have you do that. I'll make the meal that Isaac likes just the way he likes it. And you just pretend and deceive to be your brother. That way you can also get his blessing. You can get Isaac's blessing. And so this is what happens. And all of a sudden, Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau comes back a few moments later, and it talks about how Isaac starts to tremble, and he starts to quiver, because, well, then who was the one I just blessed? And that's when Esau realizes that Jacob wronged him by stealing the birthright. And all this started because of child favoritism, but it manifested itself out to this point here, that Genesis 27, 41 through 45 shows us how powerful the feeling wronged can be and the anger that comes from it. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. And when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? This idea that when a sibling feels wronged by another, it produces anger and separation. That some of you can think about your stories. When someone wronged you, someone took, well, a sibling took credit for something, or you know they're the ones that broke something in the house, and somehow you're the one that got punished for it. Um, or maybe, let's take a moment and say, we could also peel back and then look at maybe if we have kids that have, that we have multiple kids and their siblings there. And maybe there are ways in which if we're not careful, we might show favoritism towards one. We might be more lenient towards one child than the other. We might have higher standards for the other. And in so doing, it can create this resentment, which if we're not careful, if we don't show our kids how much we love them, will create anger and potential separation. That Jacob and Esau were then separated for, a lot, for many, many years. And it stems back from Esau was loved more by Isaac. Jacob was loved more by Rebekah, and it created this fissure, this division within the family structure. In fact, if we want to take a moment to remember how 
powerful the anger and resentment can be when it comes to siblings. We only need to look a few chapters before in Genesis chapter 4 because the very first murder we read about in the Bible is an extreme case of sibling rivalry. The Lord looked in Genesis 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. That because Cain didn't, his, his offering was, you know, it was plants and it was good. Abel gave the, the better offering. It was meat. It was, a, it was a higher sacrifice to give to God. But even within that structure, we see how Abel was then caused this resentment from Cain, and Cain ended up killing Abel. So this power of anger, this power that these negative emotions that we can quiver with, we quiver with resentment, we quiver with anger and how that impacts us. And then the last part in our notes for this top section is how we can quiver with fear. When siblings are cut off from each other, fear can hold them back from reconciling. We're going to fast forward. It's been many years. We follow Joseph's story in Genesis 29 through 31. And then we get to a point in which Joseph, sorry, Jacob is now uh, needing to go back and needs to confront his brother. In fact, in Genesis 32, starting in verses 3 through 6, just to summarize it, Jacob sends messengers to his older brother Esau and, and says, you know, I've been given all these things. I want you to know I have these, these flocks. I have uh, this family. I'm going to go through your land. And, and I just want you to know if I found favor within your eyes, if you would just let us pass through this land without incident. And the messenger comes back in verse 6. And what he tells Jacob is that your brother Esau is going to be sending uh, what he says, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So all of a sudden, Jacob hits this realization that he hasn't forgiven me, we haven't gotten any reconciliation, and now my family, my flocks, my life is in danger. And this fear is what starts to overwhelm him, and he starts to share this. In verse 7, we read it this way. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But Lord, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That this fear was overwhelming. He was greatly distressed and he was afraid because he knew that he had wronged his older brother, that he was the favored one from his mother, Rebecca, that he did receive both the birthright through Esau's short-sightedness, and then he received the blessing through 
Isaac's short-sightedness of not being able to literally see who was in front of him and be blinded in order to give the blessing. And so he knows that he's separated his family. He now has 12 sons, and he has two wives and two concubines, and he splits them up for fear that at least one of them, at least some of them may be able to survive this rivalry with his sibling, with his brother. But he's quivering with fear, and he's asking God, God, you told me to take this step to go back into my land and to prosper amongst my relatives, but Lord, I'm afraid. I don't deserve what you've given me, but I'm afraid because of what could be taken away from me when I meet my brother Esau along the road. And so we see how there's these negative emotions of of fear. We see resentment. We see anger. And that's many of the emotions we feel when we are experiencing a rivalry with our siblings, with our brothers, our sisters. But this is not the end of the story. And We're grateful to recognize that rivalry is not the end of our story when it comes to our siblings. That thankfully, as our main point says, thankfully, we have a God of reconciliation. So what does it look like to see the reconciliation? What are the things that Jacob did or they experienced? Because this word reconciliation, uh, the etymology of it or or the root words of it is re, so to, to redo it. But then conciliation is this idea of bringing back together. So it's this idea of they are being reunited back together. Does it mean that everything's going to be perfect from now on in their relationship as siblings? No. But does it mean that they once were completely separated, completely cut off, and fear was holding them back? But what does it look like that they were at least brought back together and reconciled to one another? So we're going to see here, we continue Genesis 32. But here's how we combat resentment that we saw in the first part. We can combat deep resentment by displaying deep kindness. We could combat deep resentment by displaying deep kindness. The next part of Genesis 32, verse 13, Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and to his servants, and said to his servants, excuse me, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. That he recognized that he was going to give a gift of great kindness, of great wealth. That again, as we talked about earlier, Jacob just had a staff when he first moved to the area, and now he's become two camps. He's got all this all this livestock, and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Esau a gift. I'm going to send him with kindness because there's part of Jacob that realizes that he already took the birthright. He took the blessing that physically the things that were meant to be Esau's would now be Jacob's once Isaac dies. And he goes and he says, okay, that causes deep resentment that I took things and I took cattle and livestock and wealth from him when my dad dies his father, Isaac, they're still alive, but he's like, well, I'm going to preempt, preempt this, and I'm going to give him a deep gift. I'm going to give him a wealthy gift, and I'm going to do so in order for hoping that that deep kindness would start to melt away this deep resentment that's been boiling for years. For some of you, for some of us, we know that there's a rivalry, there's a division that whether our, our parents knew about it and intentionally chose to do it or whether it was unintentional, but there is division within our siblings. And we often hear uh, the quote that 
parents are only as happy as their unhappiest child. And this idea that if our unhappiest child is because they're experiencing rivalry with their other children, with our other children, then there's this division that is not the target that we've been created to have when it comes to families. That brothers and sisters are supposed to come alongside one another, support one another. The reason there were so many kids back in those days is that they'd be able to have enough family to work the land and to be able to have it be prospering and in order to see the family grow and prosper. Now, now we don't necessarily have that same dynamic nowadays, but still, brothers and sisters were created for unity, created to move the family name forward and not for division and separation and resentment. And so by showing deep kindness, Jacob is hoping that giving out of his wealth will be able to start paving the road brick by brick, step by step, to reconciliation rather than to a restitution when Esau can call him, kill him, and take his riches as well. So he prepares a gift by so displaying deep kindness. Now, we can right or wrong. And quell anger by showing humility, generosity, and respect. When it comes to our siblings, we can right a wrong and quell anger by showing humility, generosity, and respect. How does Jacob do this? Verse 17. He instructed the one in the lead, Jacob did, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And so how did he exhibit humility, generosity, and respect? Well, we saw the generosity piece by giving of all those gifts and giving the wealthiness at the point of when, he, when Esau were to say, whose gifts are these or who's, who owns all this stuff? And the servants, the first, the second, the third, each servant would repeatedly say, your servant Jacob is giving this gift to his Lord Esau. So it's through this generosity he's giving the great gift. It's through humility and through respect that he's putting himself very clearly in a position of recognizing that Esau is his Lord, that he is just Esau's servant. He puts himself in a position of where he's lower than what the birthright says, what the blessing says, but he's choosing humility. He's choosing to show respect. One, so he's not killed. I mean, let's just be call it what it is. But two, why? Because this is perhaps, perhaps my brother will receive me. Perhaps there can still be a reconciliation through this. Perhaps this isn't the end of our story. And so he looks at this idea that he could show humility by using the verbiage that he is Lord and that, Esau, that Jacob's the servant. Generosity by giving the gift and respect by sending people over and over and over to say the same message, to show that respect. And we all know how important it is for us to feel respected by those that we care about, even by those we don't. But specifically, if we have resentment, then kindness can pave the way. If we have anger, 
if someone respects us enough, you know, as we say here, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This idea, if we have kind words and respect and gentleness, that can turn away wrath and anger. Lastly, as we close, this is the, uh, the bigger passage we're going to see. We're going to jump to Jacob uh, to Genesis 33. And this is the last part. We talked about how we combat resentment with kindness, anger. The first part in our first notes was anger with respect. And then now how do we cover fear or push through that? So we can push through fear of, rec- of reconciling by forgetting who was in the wrong and by remembering that loving one another is right. That it's so easy for us to hold on to, well, it was your fault. You're the one that always did this wrong. It was your reason that we're divided in the first place. And we could stay as siblings or in any relationship, we could stay within our own lonely towers, hoping that we could just prove ourselves right. And with every time we've held on to being right, it's another brick that builds up the wall between those and those we, or us and those we love. Whereas instead, if we were just to break down our walls and extend that drawbridge and recognize, yes, I made mistakes. And yeah, you made mistakes too, but it's not about who's wrong and who wronged us. It's recognizing that as siblings, God put us together in this quiver, in these groups of arrows, and let's love one another. Even if we don't agree about everything, even if we don't agree about anything, we still ought to love those that are near us. Now, let me be clear. I recognize that there are some circumstances in which this is not possible. And, and for clarity's sake, perhaps it's something where your sibling perpetrated some, some horrible abuse upon you. And, and so what I'm saying is, does that mean that you go back and you pretend everything's okay? No, no, no. You could still make sure that you're protecting yourself, but forgiveness is still part of our lives as Christians. And what that looks like might be different. It might be a forgiveness, and then there's the idea of reconciliation, where it's bringing back together. And you may say, I forgive this person, but the reconciling is going to take a little while. Well, the reconciling might be tough. And so I'm not saying you just forget about everything that happened if, if there's some deep-seated wounds there that we might see, need to see counseling. We might need to move forward and, and process things before we just come back. And if someone's unsafe, We don't necessarily need to put ourselves back in an unsafe position. But what we do is we recognize that as far as it is up to us, we want to be at peace with everybody. As far as it is up to us, when it comes to our siblings, how do we forget who was in the wrong and remember that loving one another is right? I'm going to read a longer passage of Scripture now just to paint the picture of their uh, reunion. So this is Genesis 33 Um, It's on page 53 in your notes, or sorry, in your Bible. So Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Which in and of itself, remember we were just talking about child favoritism? What is Jacob telling to his servants, the kids he's had through the servants? He's saying, it's okay if you die first, as long as my favored ones are still in the back. 
I'm not saying that Jacob's perfect. I'm not painting him to be a perfect saint because he had the same generational baggage that we talked about last week. He too showed favoritism and put his favorites in the, favored ones in the back and basically put forth so that if someone was going to be attacked and killed, it'd be the kids he didn't love as much. So we're not absolving him of everything, but guess what? Like we talked about last week, Jacob, like Everybody else in the Bible were real people. They're not characters in a story that are perfect. They're real people in God's story, and he is perfect and forgives us anyways. And so we see that he does the same thing, but let's continue. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So he was still brave enough to go into the front and put his favorite ones in the back. But he still, he bowed down again, showed that humility, showed that respect to Esau. Verse four, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you've received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and, all, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it that Jacob pushed through the fear. He went in front of everybody, bowed down, and he risked his own life in order to, hopefully through gifts and through all these things, in order to make a way where there was no way to have a reconciliation, a bringing back together with his brother Esau. And Esau responded with such grace and, and acceptance and favorable uh, reception. And so it just... When someone, when we ask for forgiveness, when we let down the walls and the drawbridge from our castles and our, and our fortress that we've separated with people, and we walk out and we are the first ones to make that step of reconciliation, does it always work out as beautifully as it does here? No. But will it ever work out as beautifully if we don't try? No. And so he knew he had wronged his brother, and he wanted to extend graciousness to him. And we see that the, the way to combat fear is through this deep love. The first John 418 furthers this point. That there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And that's talking about the context of God's love for us. But it paints the picture that when we love someone enough, when we love them with this kind of godly love that drives out fear, does that allow us to have the opportunity to extend grace, to extend kindness, to show respect, and to be the first one that makes a way where there is no way? That we could stay within our lonely towers and try to keep the peace so that no one else is mad at each other and so that Thanksgiving is as, less, as small of amount of awkwardness as it can be. Or we could let down our drawbridge, walk out, risk 
pain and heartache again, but without that risk of pain and heartache of loving someone that we're close to, and maybe we've wronged, maybe they've wronged us, without that, then we'll both just stay in our lonely castles. There'll be no reconciliation. There'll be no bringing back together. Our parents' hearts will stay broken, and the heart of the Father will not see reconciliation, and that is what he does. He's a God of reconciliation, of bringing together, of making a way where there is no way, that while we were still sinners and we were far from God and we were separated, he sent Jesus to be that bridge, to extend that offer, to allow us to make that decision to go from our lonely castle to God's great house that he's built in store for us. A house that has many rooms, enough for each and every person here if they surrender their lives to him. And so we have to push through that fear in order to land at the love that God has for us. So, this story, this, this, story, this passage, this topic, um, is specifically tough for me. Uh, I don't want to go into a bunch of details, but my brother and I, I have a brother who's 12 years older than me, so when I was going into kindergarten, uh, he was going off to college. Um, and... So in a lot of senses, I grew up in a lot of my formative years um, as kind of like an only child. But man, my brother growing up, he would take me in his uh, sky blue Volkswagen, convertible Volkswagen bug. And we would go see movies together. And I was like, my brother can drive. And so we would see like the Flintstone movies. No one wants to watch those, but my brother would because we were together. Um, I'm sorry if you like those movies. <laughs> I've really crossed the line. No. Um, but it's one of those where, you know, we would have those moments when we were grown, when, when we got older, I would drive up to visit him um, in San Francisco and we would go to Giants games together. And I love the Giants. I know he didn't really love the Giants, but we would go together, have breakfast and then go see a game. And sometimes we would leave during the middle of the game because it was more just about spending time together. And again, long story short, um, without going into detail, that he and I have been estranged for over a decade. Um, we've talked, texted here and there. Um, he feels like I wronged him, and, and I was really wounded by him. Um, and so there's, a, there's these two walls, these two castles that have been built up. And every once in a while, I try to extend something, and it would be rebuffed. And, and every once in a while, it would just be, you know, we, we would try, and, and it just felt like I would ask my mom, is there something else I can do, or what does it look like? And I'm not painting myself to be the paradigm of virtue in this story, but I am wounded and have inflicted wounds, intentionally or not. And so we had lunch together uh, in December of 2017, I believe. And it was the first time we'd seen each other at that point in nine years. And it's still something where since then we haven't seen each other. That was fine. It was, a, it was a kind of an initial bringing together, but it wasn't a full reconciliation. It wasn't a full restoration of the relationship. And I know that that's still hard for, for me. It's hard for him. It's hard for my parents. And so this whole time working on this sermon, I'm writing these notes of what Jacob's doing. And I'm like, man, isn't it so nice that the Bible doesn't actually apply to my life today? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. It's exactly where I'm at today. Maybe. It's exactly where you are as well. Maybe if you're in the midst of a sibling rivalry, whether spoken or unspoken, 
whether acknowledged or unacknowledged, take some time this week, this week, to process through any resentment that you might feel, that they might feel, any anger that creates division, any fear that is holding you back from getting out of your lonely castle, dropping the drawbridge, and then walking out to extend that way where there is no way. Some of you here are saying, well, I don't have any sibling rivalries. I, you know, my, my siblings were great. We're close to each other. Um, we have a good rapport. It's not perfect, but it's good, and that's awesome. And so you might be sitting here thinking, well, this sermon doesn't really apply to me. Some of you don't even have siblings, and, and you, you know, so again, you're patiently waiting for the time to end because you're like, how does this apply to me? This is what I want to challenge you with and encourage you with is that once we gave our lives to Jesus, our definition of siblings expanded. That in Matthew 12, it says this. It talks about how, who is my brother? Who, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Because his brothers and mother came to visit him while he's teaching the disciples. And they say, you know, they're waiting for you. And he's like, who, who are my, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? It's those who do the will of the Father. So you might be in this room and you might not have any rivalry with your actual physical siblings. You may not have siblings, but I would still ask, are there people in the relationship with God or, or people who are other Christians that you know well that you've created a rivalry with? Because that, that definition is expanded now. And so now, do I have a sibling rivalry with another pastor? Do I have a sibling rivalry with someone I used to work with? Do I have a sibling rivalry with other people that love Jesus, who do the will of the Father? And so all intents and purposes, we should be brothers and sisters. So perhaps the first part of the message doesn't apply to you, but perhaps God is challenging you to go deeper into that kind of relationship with other people who know Jesus. And process, do I have resentment towards them? Do they have resentment towards me? What anger is there? Where have we been cut off? And what fear is holding me back? Because if we believe that, or if we can acknowledge that sometimes the parent is only as happy as his unhappiest child, how much does it break the heart of God when he sees his children divided amongst each other? So to close, we've talked about moving from rivalry to reconciliation. And this is more than just our way out of sibling rivalry. This, the ministry of reconciliation, isn't our way out of rivalry. It's our way of life. It's our calling to ministry. Paul says it this way as we close. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was committed, or sorry, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That our calling it's not to live in rivalry with those around us. Our calling isn't even to live in rivalry with the world. We are opposed to the world, but we do so in a way in which we want to help them be reconciled to God, to be ambassadors, to find out more about them, and to get out of our castles of this is what Christendom looks like, and this is what secularism looks like. What does it look like for us to lower the drawbridge and have a ministry of reconciliation and make a way where there is no way so that people can be reconciled to God? 
That's our calling. That's our responsibility to move from rivalry to reconciliation. And so if we take that ministry seriously, from rivalry to reconciliation, and we show kindness to people who are far from God, we show respect and love to people who are far from God, then maybe, maybe those people with whom we were once rivals would truly become our siblings by doing the will of the Father and knowing that he is a good, good Father. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are here in this place, and we thank you for your word, that it is living and active. God, I pray for people who, uh, who are here today, and maybe they came for the first time or the first time in a while, and maybe this isn't what they were expecting, Lord, but maybe it's what they needed. God, we're grateful that you know your people and what we need to hear. Uh, God, I pray that you would be stirring in the hearts of those of us who, whether this is our first time here, whether we've been here for years, God, may we, you stir within us so that we can either see the part that we've played in sibling rivalry or the part that we've played in maybe instilling a rivalry in the generations that follow us. And God, may we process through that. May we show kindness and love And in so doing, may more people come from rivalry to reconciliation with you. God, may we take the ministry of reconciliation clear. uh, May we take it seriously. May we live it out clearly. And may we please you as we do so. We love you, Lord. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.